0: Shahrazani, and in the news the rising tensions in Israel's northern border with terrorist Shiite organization and Iranian proxy Hezbollah. Recent months have seen an alarming rise in the tensions between Hezbollah and Israel from sending Hezbollah drones to the site of Israeli gas drill site to taunting IDF soldiers on the border. Something is brewing up north. How likely are we to see an escalation in this tension and potentially even an armed conflict on the Lebanese border? And where does Iran fit in? To answer these questions and more, joining us all the way from Israel on JBS is our good friend, Sarit Zehavi, the founder and CEO of Alma Research and Education Center in Northern Israel. Sarit is an IDF intelligence veteran and security expert. She lives with her husband and five children in the village of Kfar Vadim, located in the Western Galilee, of Northern Israel. Sari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. First of all, I want to compliment you on the work you do. I have to say I'm in receipt of your updates and articles, and it's always fascinating to hear your perspective on everything that's happening in the region. So kudos for the great work. Thank you very much. So talking about articles, I want to dive in. You recently published uh, a joint piece in the Jerusalem Post concerning the UNIFIL force in that area on the border with Lebanon. Tell our viewers a little bit about what is UNIFIL and what exactly is happening in the last few days in this regard.
1: So the piece was was written with my former commander, uh, Brigadier General Erez Meisel, who has a lot of experience with UNIFIL. Uh, And actually, UNIFIL is the United Nations Interim Force to Lebanon, interim since 1978, but uh, (laughs) its mandate was uh, stressed and the force was greatly enlarged in 2006 uh, in a resolution of the United Nations Security Council that ended the war in 2006. And due to this resolution, uh, the force was supposed to be 15,000 soldiers. Eventually, it is around 10,000 soldiers. supposed Uh, to be how many? Supposed to be 15,000, but actually after a lot of changes and the changes in the mandate, it's 10,000 soldiers, uh, including European soldiers, by the way. Uh, the, the, the question is, or the big question is, what is the mandate of UNIFIL? Because the whole idea of the resolution was to create a new order in South Lebanon after the previous conflict, while the South Lebanon will become an area where unauthorized Players uh, or armed players will not be present. This was the vision. This was the idea. Mini Hezbollah. Mini Hezbollah, Hamad, Global Geopolitical Organization, whatever. This was the idea. This was the idea behind uh, the stressing of the mandate. This was the idea behind having 10,000 UN soldiers, the most expensive force of the UN uh, in, I think, uh, anywhere in the world. And uh, okay. But can it actually enforce this resolution? If you ask UNIFIL, if you ask uh, all the rest of the world except for Israel, they will tell you that UNIFIL cannot enter private territories. And that's why UNIFIL is not enforcing the resolution. It should be the Lebanese army. Bottom line is nobody enforced the resolution. And neither UNIFIL nor the the Lebanese army and Hezbollah is actually getting closer to the border every day. The mandate was just renewed as an annual resolution of the United Nations Security Council every year. Each year, there is a try to stress and demand that a little bit more to make the UN force a little bit more effective to address the problem of the presence of Hezbollah without saying Hezbollah,
0: Who, without who's mentioning trying, Hezbollah. Who's trying to do that?
1: This year, we've seen some of the member states of the Security Council you know, having some negotiations Uh, for the first time, we even saw that the resolution was delayed in 24 hours because they couldn't get, you know, an agreement exactly of how to phrase it. But the bottom line is, the bottom line stays the same. Even though there are are some small differences that we can analyze in the expressions in the resolution, the bottom line stays the same. Is that UNIFIL is not independent. It doesn't have a freedom of movement. Uh, in South Lebanon, it is armed, but it is intimidated by Hezbollah military operatives that are not always armed or you can't always see their arms, let's put it this way. Uh, And we see them more and more walking around on the Israeli-Lebanese
0: Let me ask you, um, do you think that, have you seen cases in which these UN forces collaborated actively with Hezbollah?
1: No, I don't think they collaborate actively. I actually don't think they have bad intentions or anything. I truly believe in their good intentions. I just think that they are afraid, that they are intimidated by Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is the the locals, they uh, control the area. And UNIFILD don't want to clash with Hezbollah to create or to have conflict with Hezbollah. And actually to fight Hezbollah presence in South Lebanon means conflict, means that you will have to violently act against it.
0: Right, what, what, a, what a great allegory to the entire international system that we live in today. Um, I'm wondering about the activity that you've noticed of Hezbollah on the um, Israeli-Lebanese border. What have you seen happening in the last few months? And what does that tell you?
1: Shaha, I must tell you the good news of this morning, that uh, You know, on Sunday, uh, I had a group of Americans uh, on the Lebanese-Israeli border. And I took them to see one of Hezbollah's uh, military positions that uh, uh, were put there like a few months ago under cover of an organization named Green Without Borders. It's as if it is a civilian organization, but actually the operatives are military operatives of Hezbollah, sometimes command the operatives of Hezbollah. And we see these positions everywhere along the borderline. Last Sunday, I I showed them a specific position, one of these positions, and today it disappeared. It's not there anymore. I was very happy to see that. And you can be sure that uh, tomorrow I will go and check the rest of the positions to see whether they disappeared as well.
0: What what does that mean, Sarit? What what do these positions, what what does that mean to you?
1: These are just mobile containers. It's very easy to move them from one place to another. So if one disappeared, it doesn't mean too much. If you disappeared, which this is what I'm going to check, it may mean that Hezbollah understood that it can't be there anymore. I don't know whether because of the fact that IDF published it, because Alma published it, because it was all over, because uh, the UN addressed it and the UNIFIL addressed it, maybe all of the above. But again, I don't want to jump into conclusions only uh, after I saw only one disappearing. Let's let's see what we'll
0: and, and you're case, saying that if we see if we see several of these positions all over the border, it means something.
1: And if we don't see them anymore, it also means something. Right. So for now, we do see them, uh, almost twenty of them, all along the border line. Pop up in the past few months, up to a year. They they were there before, but not as many. Very very few. They were there before, but a little bit more concealed not in the most bold places next to the border. They were there before, and they put a lot of efforts to hide their true activity, which is not the case in the past few months. In the past few months, we see them, each time I'm standing next to the border, a few minutes, popping up a few frisbada military operatives, taking photos of me, looking at my group with binoculars. We look at each other with binoculars. And you must understand this reality is very similar to the reality that was on the border just uh, before the war in 2006. Right. This is not the reality we got used to in the past 16 years. In the past 16 years, or maybe I should say in the past 15 years, until a year ago, Hezbollah put uh, efforts in concealing its activity in South Lebanon. And all of a sudden, this changes. And this changes along with UNIFIL reports that Hezbollah block its way next to the borderline. And you understand that on the borderline itself, meaning meters from the borderline, what you see is Hezbollah, more Hezbollah and less unity. What you see is more more friction between IDF soldiers and and Hezbollah.
0: What, What does that friction look like?
1: I can tell you what I what I personally saw. And right, which you, will I, I be, which <laughs> will be
0: amazing, amazing. because That's exactly what our viewers are privileged to have by having you. What did you witness and see with so your own?
1: I have, I have videos that I took of Hezbollah popping up when I was standing at the border with the group, 11 of them just walking along the borderline. My guess, by the way, was the planned patrol of Hezbollah along the borderline because a week later I saw them again exactly at the same time. And when they saw us, they just stopped and did like that uh, to us. Uh, And this is friction. Uh, This is you know, it's not that they are going to open fire. I'm not going to take groups to the border if I assume somebody will open fire at us. Okay, but it means that the potential for escalation. If you combine that with what Nasala is saying around the maritime border and the campaign around the maritime border on social media, and the campaign around the maritime border in Lebanon in general, not only Hezbollah. This makes me worry, and I'm truly curious to see whether we'll have an agreement in the end or not. If we will have an agreement, things will calm down a little bit.
0: Sarit, we're talking about the maritime issue and the negotiations with Israel, and there are those who claim that Hezbollah is in in a real problem within Lebanon because of what's happening there economically and naturally because of the terrible, terrible explosion at the Beirut port a couple of years ago. So the question is, is Hezbollah doing these drills with Israel in an attempt to look better to Lebanese and to show itself as a great defender of Lebanon or what's happening right now on this issue of the maritime negotiations um, with Lebanon?
1: So I would present a map just to be clear on what we are negotiating upon. Okay, now, I, I wanna say something. Nobody knows what's going on in Asrata's head, okay? We, we are trying to figure this out. And when we are speaking on the maritime border, we can speak of three scenarios around it. But first, I wanna show you this map because it was important for me to explain uh, what we are dealing with. What, right. what's, what we, should we compromise upon? And you actually see three lines. Line number one, is the line that Israel believes should be the, the, the border of the economic water. Line number 23 is what the Lebanese presented to the UN uh, 12 years ago. And this was the area of dispute. As you can see, the gas field Karish is not in the area of dispute.
0: Where is, where is the uh, Karish gas field? Here it
1: there is. There we
0: go, it's number eight there, okay. Yeah.
1: So it's not in the area of dispute, okay, and, a few months after we had found Karish field, mean an Israeli gas field, we signed an agreement with a company named Energia. The Lebanese presented a new border from the of interview, 2021, border line 29.
0: So, so initially, in 2010, they weren't even claiming that they have any rights in the Karish area. And suddenly in 2021, which was after we discovered uh, Karish, they came up with this idea.
1: Yes. And also, due to uh, polls that were made in Block 9 in Lebanon, they claimed that there is a gas field there, that they named it Kana, which 20% of it is in the Israeli side. Or if you like, in the new area of dispute, that like tripled the old one, the old area.
0: Right. They just now, decided that so that's, that's going to be...
1: Now, there are a lot of... Um, leaks from the negotiations reports that I don't have any way to evaluate them that says that eventually we are discussing a compromise of sharing the profits, mainly profits of Kana with Israel because it's in the Israeli side of uh, enabling the Lebanese to excavate in the original area of dispute over here. And that way both sides will get gas, except Israel will get gas the moment we will start to harvest, meaning this September, maybe October, I don't know. Again, there are different reports about that.
0: And the Lebanese,
1: it will take a few years because the process is just at its beginning. The process of, you know, there is a process around it. It doesn't take one day just to find that, et cetera. Okay,
0: so this- But are we, but is Israel supposed to share Karish profits with the Lebanese or no?
1: No, Israel doesn't suppose to share anything. The question is what will Israel will compromise upon. I don't see Israel compromising upon Karish. I will be surprised if this will be the case.
0: It's only the Kana thing, that uh, the Kana drill site, that might be an issue.
1: Again, this is what I feel. I hope I'm right. Uh, I don't see why should Israel compromise upon Karish. Right. Okay. Okay, now, what happened is that two months ago, a floating gas rig arrived to Karish, settled in this area, which is outside any area of the field whatsoever, and announced that it will start to harvest the gas in September. And then Hezbollah completely changed its wording around this issue and started to threaten war and say, if we will not get our rights in Kana, Israel will not harvest the gas in Karish.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. And that's, when, and, that's when it sent a drone in?
1: Exactly. And to make sure we all understand the message, Hezbollah sent four drones, uh, unarmed drones that IDF intercepted, so we can send it, say it sent unarmed drones to a gas rig that didn't start to harvest the gas. Right. Okay? When the gas rig will start to produce the gas, maybe the drones will be on. Nasrallah is continue to threaten, it's either saying it's either the Lebanese rights or war. We see this also in Lebanon in general, saying we will not uh, compromise on our rights, which of of course there there will be a compromise eventually on something. Uh, And the question here why did Nasrallah all of a sudden started to say, whoa, 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 which is a term that he didn't use in the past 16 years, except for a very, un- exception, ex- except for a very un- unusual incident, which is around the killing of uh, Imad Murnia number two in Hezbollah in 2008, okay? And again, there are a few options. The first option is that Nasrallah wants to, to create the image that he pushed for the agreement, that thanks to Hezbollah and thanks to Nasrallah, Israel uh, agreed to compromise and actually enabled the Lebanese to get gas and to improve their economic situation. I'm reminding everybody, it will not happen tomorrow morning, even if we'll have a compromise, it will take time. Right. Second, maybe Nasrallah is actually not interested in an agreement, but actually not also interested in an escalation Israel wants to preserve the conflict and the maritime border is another way to to create an ongoing conflict, an unsolved conflict, and actually to give an excuse for the resistance to exist because why should Lebanon need a resistance against Israel if Israel is not taking any Lebanese areas? There are a few disputes, disputes, by the way, on the land, but very, very small. And the third option, which, you know, I wouldn't think it's it's probable, unless I I was to see everything I see on the borderline all the time, is the option that Nasrallah is actually interested in
0: war. And then we go back to the containers you mentioned before.
1: Exactly. Now, it's not that I'm positive about it. It's just that, you know, if I need to assess, What I can say is that the potential to escalation uh, between Israelis and Lebanese, when we have this kind of warding and threats by Hezbollah, and again, threats that are being said not only to Israelis, threats that are being said to the Lebanese themselves, threats that are being said to Hezbollah military operatives themselves that create this atmosphere of war uh, encouragement to, to go to war. Sarit, Sarit, I have to ask
0: you, you, you're such an expert. We hear all the time about a dire economic strait in Beirut, about the fact that Beirut, the what used to be the Paris of the Middle East, has less electricity hours a day than Gaza. So under these circumstances, can Lebanon go into a situation of war with Israel the way we've seen the terrible devastation of 2006 or Hezbollah simply doesn't care about Lebanon?
1: So, if the logic logic is that Hezbollah is interested in war, which I'm not sure, but it is an option, it means a lot of money that will get into Lebanon. There will be a lot of damage. But as you said, they are already living in a very poor situation. Right. Maybe the logic is let's go to war. And after the war, a lot of money will get in. And all the IMF restrictions and all international restrictions and all the demands about fighting corruption, everybody will come and help Lebanon because it was just devastated by these crazy Israelis. Okay. This is what happened in 2006. This is what happened in Gaza again and again and again. Each time there is a conflict, a lot of money is getting into Gaza, international money is getting into Gaza and this may be the case and one more one more word that was not said here which again it's it's a question mark i don't have all the answers i'm sorry is iran okay, okay. Uh, no doubt iran would not want to spend its most expensive i can say joker or proxy militia most professional proxy militia in the middle east which is lebanese hezbollah and, in a war with Israel that Iran doesn't believe that this war will bring something, will benefit something, at least will create a lot of damage to the state of Israel. So here is my question, and it's an open question, whether the Iranians got to the point that they believe it's time to war. They believe that why not, Uh, you know, Israel is weak, the West is weak around what is happening in Ukraine. Uh, America is willing to, to be out of the Middle East. Uh, m- maybe, and you know, it's not a am positive that this is the case. But uh, I think it's an option that me as an Israeli, we must consider because we must be prepared to the worst case scenario. And that's the worst case scenario.
0: So, so under this under this calculation, the Lebanese, society, or Lebanon, is merely a pawn in the hand of Iran and Hezbollah, literally hostages of their strategic desires.
1: 100%. Lebanese are hostages, especially those who are against Hezbollah. They are those who are for Hezbollah, but those who are against Hezbollah, they are hostages in the hands of Hezbollah. I'll tell you a story. We published a video of a woman from South Lebanon. A Shiite woman dressed with the hijab and everything. And she was standing in front of the camera and she was shouting and crying. And she said, and and somebody was trying to take her away from the camera. And she said, no, 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 no. I want my voice to be heard. I have a voice. I'm a mother. And she said, I have a voice. I'm a mother. And I want my leader to know we are the strongest party in Lebanon. She talked about Hezbollah. We are the strongest party in Lebanon, but my kids don't have bread for the sandwiches. And you're raising up the uh, prices of uh, fuel. And we don't have fuel to buy for the generators. We're not going to have electricity at all. Because most Lebanese are using generators. They don't use the. There is no, uh, Uh almost no electricity by the government. So they use private generators. She didn't speak against Hezbollah in a sense that she said, let's replace Hezbollah. It's not even an option. She spoke because she wanted her voice to be heard by the leadership of Hezbollah, by her own leaders. And I think this is what is shocking in this video. They don't don't even think of other options.
0: Look, For them, Hezbollah is a given, uh, given reality in Lebanon.
1: Very exactly. difficult
0: yeah. for too many years, I have to admit, and not just for them. Um, you know, you mentioned the Ukraine and what's happening between, you know, the war that Russia is waging against the Ukrainian people. Uh, we we also know of a Russian uh, presence in Syria. Specifically, we hear about continuous attacks that come from the direction of Israel against airports in Damascus and Haleb, and elsewhere. How do you see, A, the Russian presence at the moment in light of what's happening in the Ukraine? And maybe a few words about the Israeli strategic um, attacks. What are they meant to achieve?
1: First, I want to state that we didn't see the Russians disappearing from Syria, okay? We saw maybe, not even maybe, we saw transfer of forces, of Russian forces from Syria to Ukraine but not in major numbers that actually change the picture of the Russian influence in Syria. Uh, Syria is a strategic asset to Russia in the Middle East, maybe the last strategic asset to Russia in the Middle East, and they are not going to give it up. And it's important for me to emphasize that, and by the way, the Russians in their own campaigns in the media, in Russian media, are showing again and again and again that there are still presence in Syria. The Russian forces in Syria, if you compare it to what is happening in Ukraine, are very small. Right. It's only around 10,000 soldiers. It's not too many. So maybe a little bit out of that went to Ukraine. Now, what is happening with the airports is something that is very important because it actually tells us a story. You can learn from the attacks what is truly happening in Syria. You can learn from the attacks if you ask the question, why these airports were attacked? And these are civilian airports. Right. If you ask this question, you understand what is actually happening in Syria. And what is actually happening in Syria is that Iran is using Syria as a corridor, and Iraq, by the way, as a corridor to transfer ammunition from Iran into the region, into the borders with Israel, either to Syria itself or to Lebanon, to Hezbollah. Now, in the past, I don't know, 12 years, this has been going on. And we've seen the campaign between the wars of Israel against that. And we saw usually a campaign between the wars, attacks, on bases, on, I don't know, shipments, not against the civilian airport. Why all of a sudden the civilian airport is being attacked, I think for the second time, and uh, the answer is clear, because Iran is using civilian infrastructure or using more and more civilian infrastructure to transfer this ammunition from Iran into the region. Actually, it is taking the same tactic that is used by Hezbollah in Lebanon, the human shield tactic, and it is now doing that in Syria. And that's and why- I I only, the
0: Right, and I can only imagine Um, what's gonna happen if and when negotiations uh, in Vienna on the nuclear issue are concluded and the regime is empowered with more and more billions of dollars, I can't imagine it's gonna use it to build numerous hospitals all over Iran for the benefit of the elderly.
1: If they will use the money to build schools and hospitals in Iran and Syria, I will be very happy, but I don't believe this is the case.
0: But I can tell you that the one bright spot about what's happening um, in the northern part of Israel, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Hezbollah, is the fact that we have used Sarit and the Alma Education and Research Center <laughs> to keep an eye on everything. I can just imagine your you know, posters and your image in the, uh, in the headquarters of Hezbollah, the eye that keeps an eye (laughs) on us. So I just want to say a big thank you for taking the time off of your busy schedule to share with us your insights about what's happening on the ground, especially your lovely sentence of, let me tell you what I saw with my very eyes. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Sari. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Shah.
0: It's uh, keep up the great work you do today, yesterday, and every day, and we look forward to your future updates. And to all of our viewers, I'd like to thank you all for watching as we get wiser with every such interview. I want you all to stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy in spite of everything. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's managing director, Dara Golub, our technical manager, Michael Paley, transmission manager, John McDevitt, and to our wonderful producer of In The News Carol Lilienthal. For JBS, I'm Shachar Azani. Until next time, see you soon. Shalom and lehitraot.